It's good to see you here at the teaching service this afternoon, and uh, we are going to be looking at the book of James together. Uh, last week, if you were here, you had a taste from the book of James when uh, Gabriel uh, did some teaching on that. I was away on holiday, and so I asked him to step in and do something. But today, we're going to be start going through the book of James itself, and it's important that we do things like this, and the teaching service gives us opportunities to go through letters in the Bible because this is how God gave us the New Testament. He gave us Gospels, yes, but he also gave us letters. And so if God gave us letters, and this is a letter from James, then we need to study them as letters. Uh, It's good to have topical preaching, you know, and we've done that at the five o'clock as well, where we've looked at the end times or uh, we've looked at what happens when you die and all those are on the internet. You can go back and look at those. That's topical or what we call systematic teaching. Systematic theology basically says, what does the Bible say about a subject? That's systematic. So systematic theology is what does the Bible say about the end times or what does the Bible say about marriage or what does the Bible uh, say about the church? That's systematic theology and that's, that's good and proper. But at the same time, if we really want to understand what God is saying to us through the scriptures, we also have to spend time looking at the scriptures in the form that God gave them to us. He didn't give us a book of doctrine in systematic format. He didn't start with uh, a chapter on uh, creation and a chapter, well he did, didn't he? But I mean, a, a chapter on God or a chapter on marriage and a chapter, it wasn't systematic. It was done in many different ways. And in our Christian lives, we will suffer if we never give time to study the scriptures in the form that they're given. So if all you ever do is hear topical preaching, well, that will bless you, but that's not the way that God gave it to us. And so looking at the letters or or books of the Bible from beginning to end is an important part of our Christian growth and knowledge. And that's why from time to time we will do that here at the five o'clock, as well as systematic teaching. Last time we did something like this uh, was the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you may have uh, experienced some of the Sermon on the Mount. We spent about two or three months going through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, doing that was a great exercise um, uh, of understanding and growth. And so here we are with the letter to James. Now, I'll mention a couple of things that... uh, Gabriel mentioned um, in his introduction last week. I'll just go over a few of those. Because when we're looking at the letter of James, we are looking at the earliest book in the New Testament. It's the earliest written book in the New Testament. Some people think it's 1 Thessalonians, but I'm convinced that when we look at James, we're reading the earliest written book of the New Testament. I'll explain why in a moment. Also, as Gabriel mentioned last week, when we're looking at the author of the book of James, we have a fascinating character that wrote this earliest book in the New Testament. Now, there's many Jameses in the New Testament, and sometimes people have got mixed up about which James wrote the epistle. Some people have thought, oh, it must have been the Apostle James, one of the twelve, but it wasn't. The James that wrote the letter of James... He was the half-brother of Jesus. We see that in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. I won't go to it, but Mark 6 verse 3, we see that Jesus had four brothers. Um, He was the firstborn, of course, born of a virgin. But after that, Joseph and Mary, after Jesus was born, they, they did have sexual intercourse. They did have other children. And one of those was James. Now, we know that during the time of Jesus' ministry, James was not a follower. He wasn't a believer. But we also know that very early on, in Jesus, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that he appeared to James. Paul in 1, Corinth, in, in 1 Corinthians, at the end of 1 Corinthians, speaking about Jesus' appearance when he teaches on the resurrection, said that he appeared to this person, that person, that he also appeared to his brother James. James became the key figure in the Jerusalem church in Acts. When you're reading the book of Acts, this James figure 
turns up again and again. And it's interesting, really, because if you come from a Roman Catholic background, uh, you're normally brought up to think that, you know, Peter was the preeminent apostle. Uh, Upon this rock I will build my church. And that the idea that Peter was the first bishop, Peter was the first pope, but that's not correct. When Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, he wasn't even talking about Peter. He was talking about the rock of revelation that the Father gave Peter, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, the Greek says this. He points at Peter and says, you are pebbles or small stones. That's what Peter means. You are pebbles or small stones, but upon this rock, I will build my church. And when you read the book of Acts, you see that James, the brother of Jesus, not the apostle, but the brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, You see this by by the time of Acts chapter 15. And I don't know if you remember, Acts chapter 15 was a time just after Paul had began the great first Um, evangelizing of the Gentiles and he came back and he said all these Gentiles are getting saved in Acts chapter 14 it's amazing and some of the Jewish believers said well they need to get circumcised straight away and they need to follow the law of Moses and uh, and Paul said no way and they said yes way no way yes way well let's go to Jerusalem and sort it out and when they were in Jerusalem Although Peter spoke up for the Gentiles because his gospel is exactly the same, of course, as, as, as Paul's was. But right at the end of that big council, it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who summed up what had taken place and said, we'll send this letter to the churches and we will not require the uh, new believers, the new Gentile believers, to get uh, circumcised, but we will ask them to abstain from eating strangled meat and meat with blood. That was James. We see, if we look at Galatians, the letter of Galatians, that in Galatians you'll find that Paul speaks about going up to meet the three pillars of the church, Peter, James, and John. So they were the three pillars of the Jerusalem church. And interestingly enough as well, if you know Galatians, you'll know that Paul had a fallout with Peter. Are you aware of that? That Peter, who had eaten with Gentiles, suddenly it says, men from James, Paul says, came and said to Peter, stop it, you can't eat with these Gentiles unless they're circumcised. They were men from James. Even after they'd had the council of Jerusalem, these men were coming from James and saying, no, you, you can't eat with them. And so Paul had to deal with that. And that's interesting. We're going to look at the figure of James because James, we've got to remember the apostles were not perfect. None of them were perfect. God used them to write perfect scripture, but they weren't perfect in everything that they did and everything they thought. I mean, look at Peter. We have two letters from Peter, don't we? First Peter and second Peter. But he got into error, didn't he? Paul had to put him straight and say, hey, you, you who lived like a Gentile, now you're not living like a Gentile. So Peter had times when he was mixed up and Paul had to deal with him. And we also realized that at that time that James, James had found it difficult to come to term with the Gentiles. And so we're talking about the half-brother of the Lord. No wonder James was so prominent in the early church, because he was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, now saved and raised from the dead. Um, Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he'd seen his brother raised, and he believed. And when we come to the book of James, this is important to remember. It's as much scripture as any part of the New Testament. So, well, why would you say that? Because over... During church history, some people have struggled with the book of James. And even to this day, there are scholars at university that say that James teaches different doctrine to, say, Galatians or the book of Romans. And this is how it's normally, and we'll look at this, this is how it's normally presented. Well, Paul, they say, in the book of Galatians or Romans, he teaches that in order to be saved... To go to heaven, you are justified by faith alone. 
Do you remember what justified means? I always use the phrase justified. What does it mean? Justified. It's just as if I'd justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's just as if I'm not sinning. And it's just as if I'll never sin again in God's opinion. So to be justified is to be declared not guilty by God. You're saved. You're going to heaven. And Paul says all that you need in order to be saved, to be justified, is belief in Jesus. Just believe that Jesus died for you and rose again, and you you will be saved. You will be justified before God. So people say, and that's correct, that's what Paul teaches. But then people go to James, and they look at James chapter 2, which we will look at, and they say, wait a second, James says something totally different. He says that, that if you have faith without works, how can that save you? Faith without works, James says, is dead. And then he goes on to speak about Abraham and Ruth and says, do you know they were justified by works as well as justified by faith? And so scholars, some scholars have thought, you see, in the early church, Paul had a gospel and James had a gospel and they were anti one another. Paul said, you're saved by faith alone. James says, you're not just saved by faith alone, but you're saved by faith and work. And many Christians today, and perhaps you here today, or you watching on the internet, welcome. There's many people that join us around the world for these teaching services, live and also uh, throughout the week they pick it up. Maybe you have heard, or you have thought, I don't understand, who's right? Is it James, or is it uh, uh, Paul? Are we justified by faith alone? Or are we justified by faith? And do we have to prove we have faith, and prove that we're saved by works. Well, I'll explain that uh, when we get to that chapter, that Paul and James are speaking about two totally different things. In fact, James never in the whole of his letter talks about how a person is saved. He's already talking to Christians. He's talking about how to deal with trials. So we'll come to those passages. But even someone like Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one who brought reformation to Europe, and and he had that revelation of of Romans chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, and he saw that that, uh, the gospel was the righteousness of God to all who believed, and that that the just uh, are justified by faith. Paul had, uh, sorry, Luther, Martin Luther, had great difficulties with James. He, He called it an epistle of straw. He even wondered whether it should be in the Bible at all. In the end, he left it. But Luther, Martin Luther, the great theologian, couldn't understand it because he misunderstood. He couldn't understand that James was not talking about how to be saved. He was talking about something different. He was talking about how to save somebody with no food, how to save somebody with no clothes. You have to actually do something about it. You have to clothe them. You have to feed them. You have to put your faith to work. We'll come to that later. And so there's been great misunderstanding, probably the most misunderstood book in the New Testament, I would say, the book of James. And even today, I hear many preachers preaching from James totally incorrectly. They've misunderstood. And part of that is exactly what I was saying earlier. They go, they jump to chapter two in a key verse, but they haven't read the rest of it. You see, if I sent you a letter, a long, important letter, and you didn't read it from the beginning to end, and you just picked out one section, I'd be annoyed because I'd be saying, wait a second, you're talking about one paragraph. Didn't you read the beginning where I explained? Didn't you read the end? You just picked what you wanted. And many people have misunderstood the book of James because they haven't done what we're going to do in these sessions. And I encourage you, if you have friends at KT... Um, I'd encourage you to bring them along to these five o'clock teaching services because some people don't understand how important it is to come and have proper teaching. So if you can invite friends that you know and say, come along, you know, this is going to strengthen your, 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 your walk with God, encourage them to do it. So James is the earliest uh, book in the New Testament that was written. I'm absolutely sure about that. And so 
When we begin the book of James, it says, look at who it's addressed. If you turn to James chapter 1, who is he writing to? It's always important, isn't it, to ask yourself, well, if it's a letter, who, what, where? If it's a letter, who wrote it and to whom and why did the person write it and what was going on during the time that the author wrote it? All that is going to help us understand what's in the letter itself. Now, here we find James. Now, in the Greek, it's Jacob. James, Jacob, you know, it's all the, the same word. J- Jacob is the Greek word for the word that we use um, uh, in, uh, in, in the Greek. James, or Jacob, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Well, that's interesting. Who is he writing to? The 12 tribes, which are, well, not scattered. The actual word is dispersed. And if you were with us when we did the systematic teaching of Israel and the Bible, um, we spent a moment speaking about the diaspora. The diaspora, the Greek word for dispersed. Because we saw that how early on in the exile, that the Jewish people were dispersed across the empire. And then especially at the end of the destruction of the temple, about 100 years after Jesus, when that was all, well, 70 AD, and then the destruction of the nation, they were dispersed again right across Europe. So when he speaks about the dispersed, who is he talking about? Well, I'm convinced he's speaking about Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. That, that's, that's what he's talking about. He's speaking about the dispersion of the Jewish believers after or during the persecution of Stephen. Do you remember when Stephen was martyred in the Acts of the Apostles? What happened after that? Well, when you read the Acts of the Apostles, you find that that wasn't the the end of it when Stephen was persecuted and, and martyred. But Paul continued at the head of it, persecuting the church wherever he could. And the church in Jerusalem, the vast majority of them were scattered. They fled And they were dispersed um, across Palestine. Um, And so when James is writing his letter, he is writing to all those that fled the persecution in Jerusalem, the believers that scattered. And by the time he's writing, things have calmed down a bit. But fresh in their minds was this terrible persecution. Now we're going to find out that there is a purpose to all trials as, as James will say. And some of them, during that terrible persecution um, with Paul and the death of Stephen, they must have been thinking to themselves, what's the purpose of this? Why did God allow such a mighty man of God, Stephen, to be stoned to death? We need him to preach the gospel. We were such a strong group of believers in Jerusalem. When you read the very early chapters of Acts, I mean, there's thousands of them. They're taking over the court precincts, preaching. The apostles are preaching to hundreds and thousands outside the temple. They're breaking bread across the city. It's revival. Then all of a sudden, it seems to go wrong. Stephen is martyred. Everybody or or the majority flee and are scattered. It looks like it's all over for the church. But you see, we know that actually, despite how horrific the persecution was, God used that to get the gospel out. God hadn't said stay in Jerusalem. Well, he did. He said until you're clothed with power on high. But then he said once you're clothed with power on high, you need to go to Samaria and the whole world. The problem was that they hadn't grasped that. They hadn't had a revelation or properly understood what God meant by that. Uh, And the most that happened was Peter preached to a few Gentiles and they got saved, but there was no mission to the Gentiles. They were happy just being Jewish believers, and James um, was their leader. So when he speaks to the 12 tribes, he's speaking about it's God's people. It's those Jewish Christians. And notice, when he speaks about the 12 tribes, there is no mention in the book of James about Gentiles at all. 
No mention about Gentiles. No mention about what to do with Gentiles or do they need to be circumcised or not. No mention of any Gentiles, non-Jewish believers at all in the book of James. Why? Because there wasn't any yet. It was too early. So we're looking at very early on for the book of James to be written, probably the middle to the late 30s. So if Jesus was died, died, uh, died and rose again, AD 33, we're talking that probably within seven years, this letter had been written. So that's how early. And this, this is really helpful because when you read the book of James, isn't, doesn't it feel so Jewish? And when you read the book of James, you can pick out the Jewishness of it and it, it's very close in parts to the way that Jesus would speak because James uses some wonderful imagery. He speaks about the tongue being a fire and the tongue being a ru- like a rudder on a big ship or, 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 or the tongue being like the bit between a horse. And he speaks in, in almost parabolic language and James comes with these powerful sayings and how can pure water and salt water come out of, out of mouth? How can blessing and cursing? And when you're reading the book of James, well, you, could, you can almost tell he was in Jesus' family. And you can see echoes of Jesus in it. But you can also see, you know, uh, it's, it's, very, it's very Jewish. And so, remember, that means some things. It means that James, when he wrote the book of James, he wasn't aware of Paul's great letters. He'd never read Galatians. He'd never read the book of Romans. And God gave great revelation, didn't he, to Paul on many of those things. Well, when James wrote the the letter to the dispersed Jewish believers, he understood the gospel, but he didn't have the incredible understanding that Paul would, would have and would bring and would, would understand later. And that was part of Paul's reason. I mean, even Peter in one of his letters talks about Paul's letters and says, you know, people try and mess up the scriptures uh, as they've tried to with Paul's letters. And he accepts that Paul's letters are scriptures, but he also accepts that some people are twisting them. And so it's amazing to see, sometimes you think that when God would use somebody to write a, write a book or a letter, sometimes you think they must have perfect theology in everything that they know. But of course that's not the case. Those that wrote the books in the Old Testament, they didn't have the fullness of understanding of the New Testaments, did they? And so when we see James, we see this beautiful picture of early Jewish, um, early Jewish Christianity. Everything that's written is, is not just James, but it's also the perfect word of God. But it's still wonderful to see this undeveloped understanding. As I said, everything that James writes is absolutely the word of God, as much the word of God as any of the word of God in the Bible. And yet James himself would have a lot more learning to do. You see? And that's why Paul would have problems with James later. Because James would never ultimately, although... He did a great job in Acts chapter 15, but he would never ultimately step out of his Jewish mindset. And that was part of God's purpose. But he would never ultimately, I mean, even, at the, even in Acts 15, even at the end of it, he, he said, they don't have to get circumcised, which is an amazing thing for him to say. But then he said, but watch their food and watch their, and then later on, that's the problem Paul had with the food. If, if James had said they don't have to follow the law, food, circumcise, every, everybody would have been sure. When Paul left the council of Jerusalem, he thought, I've won, that's it, no circumcision. If you don't circumcise somebody, then they're not, they don't have anything to do with the law. Paul understood that if you're circumcised, you have to follow the whole law. But if you don't need to be circumcised, you've got nothing to do with the law. Paul had a clear understanding, but not James. Not quite as clear. So James could say, okay, well, just, just to help the mixing, let, let's say that they should abstain from strangled meat, meat with blood in it, and let's, let's just put those things on. Paul said, fine, that's no big deal. The big thing is that they don't have to be circumcised. And then a few years, uh, then very soon after that, You've got men from James saying, why are you eating with Gentiles, idolatrous food and all this? And it all came back to haunt them. So this is a a wonderful picture of the early Jewish believers. And um, 
as we look at it, let me just give you a feel of the book of James before we, we, we go into it. The book of James is all about this subject, how to respond to trials properly. How to respond to trials properly. If you don't understand that, you're going to get mixed up with the book of James when you get into chapter 2. And as we'll see, at the beginning of James, James sets out the scene of what he's teaching about. Just like you do in a letter or an essay, you always, in the introduction, explain what you're about to do, don't you? If you've ever written an essay for school and they tell you, in your introduction, set out what you're going to do. Well, as we all see today, as we look at the introduction, Paul is talking, sorry, James, <laughs> I've been reading so much of Paul lately. James is talking about trials. Consider it all joy when you face trials and how to deal with trials. And he doesn't stop talking about trials right throughout the book. He's speaking about how to deal with trials. And right at the end of James, he ta he's talking about trials. He's saying, be patient like the farmer who waits until the harvest comes. Have the patience of Job who went through all those trials but came out blessed. Have patience in sickness and call the elders um, to, to pray for you. Don't grumble. Be like Elijah and keep fervently praying. And so the whole of the book of James is to do with responding to trials properly. After this introduction, um, we find that Paul then, from chapter 1, verse 21, and we'll go through this, talks about three different things. He talks about being swift to hear, uh, being slow to speak, and being slow to anger. We'll go all through this properly, but chapter 1, verse 21, he begins to speak about being swift to hear and, uh, and more than just listening. You know, and he talks about, he says, it's not just the hearers that are blessed, but it's the doers of the word, isn't it? So he's speaking about be swift to hear and to do. Don't be like somebody who looks in a mirror and sees that they've got a mark and goes away and forgets what he's just saw. That's hearing the word without doing it. So from chapter 1, verse 21, be swift to hear. Don't be passive. Be active listener. Be swift to hear. Then from chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about being slow to anger. You know, when you're in a trial and you're in a difficulty, when you're under pressure, everybody can be nice, can't they, when they're not under pressure? When everything's going well, somebody's nice. But if you, if you see someone under pressure, isn't that where the temper flares? Isn't that where anger comes? When that pressure comes, that, that's, that's where often you have to watch your temper. And so in trials and difficulties, that, that, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you meet some Christians and, they have a lovely house in the countryside, a nice garden, and they're under no pressure at all, and they're so sweet and nice and lovely, and you think, oh, what a lovely Christian. Then you come into the inner city, and, and someone's living in a crowded accommodation, and, and they're struggling for finances, and everything's going wrong, and, and, uh, and, 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 and they're struggling with their temper. You can't compare the two. One is under incredible pressure. One is under no pressure at all. You take that person in a lovely country cottage, put them under pressure, and we'll really see what they're like. And so, how to deal with your tongue? Because when you're angry, it's your tongue that does the damage, isn't it? So, uh, be, be swift to hear, be slow to speak, and then around chapter 4, be, be slow to, oh, sorry, be slow to speak was number two in chapter three, verse one. Be slow to speak, watch your tongue. And then chapter four, be slow to wrath. And then when we come to chapter five, it talks about keep going, keep persevering in trials because you will get a reward. And don't forget the importance of prayer in your trials. So when we look at James, it begins with an introduction, how to respond to trials properly, to welcome them and to not accuse God about them. Then it moves into being swift to hear and act, being slow to speak, and being slow to anger. And then it finishes with keep on going, don't give up, you'll get a reward, 
and don't forget the importance of prayer. That's what we're talking about in the book of James and everything as we'll see over these weeks will fit in to, to, these, to, to this overview. So let's go a little bit now into uh, the epistle of James properly. I've said that the audience right throughout this book of James are Christians. Uh, James is not writing to non-Christians. Uh, he is not writing a gospel. He's not writing to people to tell them how to be saved from their sins. He's writing to them to tell them how to be saved through their trials and from their trials. And he begins with this incredible statement. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, this is an incredible way to start. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And we know that these Jewish believers had been through various trials, so much so that they had been scattered through persecution right outside Jerusalem. It was part of God's way of getting the gospel out, but it was very difficult for them. When he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice that he talks about when you fall into various trials. He's not talking about creating trials. This falling into trials is trials that will come across your path one way or the other. Sometimes we create problems for ourselves that are of our, of our own making. We're not talking about those. Although you can learn, you can make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. You know, sometimes our, our mistakes are the best things that teach us, aren't we? But we're not really speaking about that here. We're not speaking about you having a, an attitude problem that gets you into difficulties at work and then you call it a trial sent from God. Right? We're not talking about um, sin. We're not talking about you, know, you with a bad attitude or bad decisions making, thing making things difficult for you. God can still work through those things, redeem those things, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And this is the first thing to say is that we will on earth face trials. Jesus promised us that. He said, in this life, you will face many trials, basically. But he says, but be encouraged because I have overcome the world. So, firstly, understand that in your life, as in all human beings' life, trials will come. You might say, well, yes, yeah, so what? Well, so what? Many people spend their whole life trying to run away from any difficulties or trials that face them. Uh, and so they see a trial and they run from it. They try to hide from it. They try to get themselves covered in sort of some sort of cotton wool, wool spirituality or in a situation where they'll never have to face any difficulties, any pain or any problems. In fact, backslidden Christianity today is always seeking the pleasure and never the pain. Always seeking the blessing and never the trial. I mean, I, I can't imagine it. Some of these mega, mega, hyper, hyper faith and blessing conferences that the preacher would ever turn up and say, I've got something, I've got, I've got some wisdom that's going to make you happy today. Face some trials. Face some obstacles. Face some pain in your life. Face some persecution. Face some difficulties. You'll be blessed. That preacher will probably be either kicked out of that blessing victory conference or um, would, would, would have the lowest seminar attendance of people. 
because today we, we, are, we are a generation that avoids pain like the plague. We say all pain is bad, all pleasure is good. I'm overemphasizing, but all pain is bad. But you know, it is, it is true to a certain degree to say that in the Christian life, to a certain degree, no pain, no gain. And even when everything is painless and there is no pain in Christians' lives, it's like, well, why aren't they embracing the pain of others? So you can have a church that meets and keeps itself and they have blessing meetings and prosperity meetings and all these things, not wrong in themselves, and they're all doing okay, but there's a lost and dying world outside that they don't interact with. Why? It's too painful. So you can have Christians that try and stay outside the world and don't interact with society. They, you know, it's like sometimes, not so much recently, but sometimes we end up having people wanting to apply for jobs at Kensington Temple. And some of the very naive ones come and they apply for jobs and say, well, why do you want to work in a church? And it's like, oh, because it'd be so much nicer. Because everybody will be Christians. Like, you know, every time you walk past someone's desk in Summit House, our, our office building, we go, oh, let me just bless you. She can't have See you at lunch where we all break bread together. Now, there is a spirituality that's needed, but people are thinking, I want to work in the church. Why? Because I don't want to be in the world. Well, what sort of mentality is that? And so count it joy when you fall into various trials. Well, at the moment, you're still probably thinking, well, it still doesn't sound very good to me. No, that's because I haven't yet explained to you that the blessing comes through and in the trial. My brethren, count it all joy, or you could translate it all joy, total joy. Now, the only way you can count trials total joy is if you understand them with the eye of faith, or if you understand them from God's perspective. And, and this is an incredible thing to come to, to explain and to believe that there is no trial that you will face that comes your way because you live in a fallen world, or there's no trial that the enemy can send you that can defeat you. No trial can defeat you. No test can defeat you. No test can destroy you. You can be victorious through all of them. Because God won't send you any test that will destroy you. Now, your unbelief can cause you not to pass the test or not to come through or to receive the blessings. But I don't want you to fear the things that might come your way. This is the first thing. Don't fear. So something happens unexpectedly. You, you lose your job. Don't fear. Now, I hope that wasn't because you were rude at work or you were coming in late. That's your fault. You know, get sorted. I'm not talking about those things. And even in those things, God can work. We're not talking about those things. I'm talking about that out of the blue, you lose your job for no real reason that you've lost your job. And it hits you. And the first thing that can happen, you don't consider it all joy. You consider it all defeat. And it's like, oh my goodness, what's happened why has this been allowed? This is terrible. I'm not, how am I going to get through? What's going to happen? What's, and you begin to fear the trial. But James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It wasn't your fault. You fell into this trial. You found that you'd lost your job. Well, don't worry because that trial or test, you will come through. I mean, I guarantee that you will come through. There's nothing to fear. Don't let the enemy... Sickness comes into your life. Don't fear. God knows what is happening. God will be with you. God has a way through. Don't fear. That's the first thing. I'm not saying that immediately you'll start praising the Lord. That's, that's a high level of understanding. But we need to realize that God is in control. And even the tests that come into our, he understands them and there is purpose. Right at the end of James, we'll find the example of Job. Now, if you want someone that, that went through the test of, of, 
of such a terrible test and trial. That was Joel, hey? I mean, I used to, when I used to do my Bible reading, I don't anymore, I've grown a bit more mature, but when I used to do my Bible reading, and I used to get to Job, I used to read the first chapter and the last chapter. Why? Because I got depressed reading all the other stuff. 30, however, you know, chapter after chapter of, oh, you know, curse God and die and bad friends and it's your fault. And, oh, I'm not reading all this. I'm a victory. I'm a victory preacher. Read the first chapter and the last chapter when he gets sevenfold and gets blessed. But you see, that's immature. That's like somebody reading James and saying, you know, don't understand. Because there was purpose to what he went through. He had no idea that everything that he went through would end up in God's holy word. He had no idea that at the end there would be blessing that would you know, come instead of the pain. And he uses that. So when we face trial, don't be defeated by, by the fact a trial has come into your life. I'm not asking you to consider it all joy to begin with. You say, well, that's what James is doing. That's right. But I'm saying that's where we, we need to get to because what happens is, is when you begin to apply what James talks about, about how to deal with trials, what will begin to happen is every trial will eventually bring a testimony. You see, when you're going through the trial, you don't see the blessing. Especially when you're not used to trials. You don't see the blessing. So when I first had trials or understood trials, I didn't see the blessing. Why? Because I had not been through the right types, types of tests and trials. But then, when you get through, it's like there's things in my life, I'm sure there is, is yours, walking with the Lord, there's things in my life that have made me who I am today in a good way, but I tell you, I'd never want to go through those things again, ever, but, seeing as I've gone through it, I'm glad I did. I'd never in a million years want to go through them again, but seeing as I've gone through it, and the blessing that's come out of it, and the shaping, and whatever, whatever, I'm glad I went through it. And so what does that mean? Well, that means when another trial comes, I have to, you have to stop and look at it and think, well, stop. Is, it, is this your fault? Are you out, totally out of order? Is there something that you need to adjust? This isn't falling into a trial. You're just being, a, you're just being daft or stupid, Bruce, or arrogant. Is this that? Well, I'll make adjustments just to check. No, it looks like a trial that's come out of the blue. Well, then don't fear. Because you've been through enough of them to know that God's in control. And so even though you know it. And you know what? That will bring us, I'm going ahead of myself. I'm, the beautiful thing about five o'clock services, you don't have to rush. You just pick it up where you left it off. But when we go down a little bit further, it speaks about the one who doubts being tossed by a wave. And by uh, verse six, sea driven and tossed by the wind, doesn't it? And what can happen when we're immature in faith is the more immature we are in faith is that when a trial comes, it just knocks us and we don't know what's going on and we're reeling and we're all over the place and where's God and where's our... And, and then we start grasping at anything that we can fix it and we throw out the word and the character and prayer and we will manipulate or fight or, or, or beg anybody else but God just to try and sort this thing out and then when we've sorted it out, we'll start being Christian again. And that's a temptation with the test as we'll see Later on in James, it speaks about spiritual wisdom, which is peaceable, kind, and, and demonic wisdom, which is sensual, argumentative, manipulative. And that wisdom says this, when the trial hits you, forget God, forget love, forget patience, forget walking, on, walking in the Sermon on the Mount, start punching and kicking and biting and scratching and manipulating and lying and doing whatever it takes to sort the... That's the temptation. But that person is all over the place. And I know that we all have. Have you ever been in a trial where you were all over the place? I'm not even talking about the initial thing. Sometimes you could be in shock or that, that's fine. But I'm talking about you went through a trial as a Christian, but you didn't go through it with God. I've done that. I've gone through things without God. Thank God God is always there. He's our Father. But I've dealt with trials and tests without God, without faith, without asking for wisdom. And when you're doing it, you're all over the place because you have no assurance that you're going to come through. 
and you're, and you're using all the earthly, carnal, human things to get through. And it's terrible. I've seen ministers well, and, and ministries come up against problems, financial problems and things like that. And they get so worried, so concerned, they don't, doesn't press them to God. But what they do is they use every technique that they can, that the world would use, to try and solve the problem. And they're all over the place. They get in a worse position than they did in the beginning. They lose their integrity. They lose their faith. They're tossed all over the place. There's no anchor for their souls. There's no joy in the sense that this test has come, but God hasn't forsaken us. That God's going to give us wisdom, that we're going to get through. And this is the point that trials, more than anything, produce maturity. And God, one of God's greatest plans for us is that we become mature. God wants us to bear fruit, but he also wants us to mature. He wants us to bear great fruit, but also God comes along and he prunes us. He prunes. How does he prune our lives? Often through tests and trials. You ever felt pruned? When you look outside at those trees, they've been pruned. They look naked, scary, scared, weak. They got nothing. I mean, usually those trees are full of leaves and birds and birds droppings and stuff falling on the car that can't get off. Now they've been right cut down to size. Actually, when I saw them all cut down, I smiled to myself. I thought, that shows you. All the times I haven't been able to get that stuff off my car. But you see, unfortunately, they'll come back stronger and fitter. God is not just interested in the result of the trial and bringing you out of the trial. In fact, he's more interested in what you become during it. I mean, he could have given, you can go right through the Bible and see this again and again. God is just, in fact, more interested in who you become than what you accomplish or the, or the blessings that you get. His main aim is to produce maturity in you, to, to take the gold of your faith and to refine it, to apply or allow the heat of tests and trials so that the impurities will rise, be skimmed off, and you will have a purity. You say, well, that's all very, right, all very well for God. No, it's even better for you. Because the more mature you are as a Christian, the less you'll be affected by things in your life. The less you'll be tied to this world. The happier, literally, the happier you will be, become. Abraham was promised Isaac. And uh, it took years, decades, 50, 60 years. I can't remember what scholars say. Before he had Isaac. Why did God wait so long to give Isaac to Abraham? He could have given him like that, couldn't he? He could have said, you're going to have a child with Sarah, Isaac, nine months and counting. He could have done that, couldn't he? But would Abraham after that be anything like the Abraham who took his son on the mountain to sacrifice? In fact, James will come to this later on when we look at Abraham. James will say, yes, Abraham was justified by faith when he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the beginning of his journey, the beginning of his Christian life. But what James will say, but you know what? He hadn't been tested. He was in his infancy as a Christian. He was a baby. And I don't want you to be like that, James is saying. Let me tell you about when he was justified by works. Not talking about salvation. What we're talking about is reward and maturity. And then James goes on and talks about when he sacrificed Isaac. Yeah? And what was it? Because God delayed what happened during that trial. Now, Abraham made his mistakes, had his Ishmaels, twice gave up his wife, who God said in her will come Isaac. Twice gave her up as his sister to other men. But by the time that Isaac came, what had happened? God had worked in Abraham's life. God had learned, sorry, Abraham had learned to trust God at incredibly high levels. If he had given him Isaac after nine months, the promised nine months, 
Abraham would have gone nowhere to go. He, he wouldn't have matured at all. He wouldn't have grown at all. But when you see Abraham taking Isaac up on that mountain, the maturity of faith, incredible maturity of faith, he goes up that mountain. That's a trial. God has says, sacrifice your son. That's a trial. It's a trial of faith. But it says in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking about Abraham, that he reasoned thus, that God said, in Isaac will be my seed. God's telling me now to sacrifice Isaac. God's not a liar. This is the exact opposite to what God promised. Hmm. Unless God raises him from the dead when I sacrifice him. Yeah, that's what God must be doing. And Hebrews 11 says that Abraham, that had never experienced resurrection, never seen resurrection, reasoned in his mind the reasoning of faith, had been through trials, had, had been in places where he thought, oh, it's finished, but God came through. Oh, it's all, you know, he faced one trial and he was like, oh no, it's over. God got him through. Then he faced another trial. Oh, we're finished. God got him through. <laughs> Gave up his wife, but God brought her back. We're finished. Again and again, we're finished. We're finished. And after a while, he thought, that's funny. Do you know, whenever I enter these trials, I think we're finished. We're not. Maybe God is faithful. Maybe God is true. Because every time it looks like God has abandoned me or his promise, give it time. We always come through. And he learned and grew stronger and stronger in his faith till he came to that place where he reasoned. He could think, wait a second, biggest trial of all. But I've learned now that God is faithful and that trials are always the avenue to future blessing. So if he's saying to, that I must sacrifice and kill the very boy he promised my line would be in, then that must mean that he's going to raise him from the dead. That is so incredible. So he says to his son, me and the boy are going to sacrifice and me and the boy will be back. And his son's going, well, what's going to happen? Oh, the Lord will provide. He wasn't worried. He, he was counting it all joy. He wasn't phased. If it was you or me where we are in our faith, we would be like, no way, God. But we would be like angry. We'd be like, who do you think you are? You, you're out of order. How could you get, wouldn't we? We'd be complaining and we'd just, be, I'd just basically, if it was me, I'd say, no. I wouldn't do it. Would you do it? I would not do that. If I was in his shoes right now, I tell you, I've not mature in faith. If I was Abraham, I would say, no, not doing it. Ridiculous thing to ask. Makes no sense. See, but he trusted God. He trusted God through the trial. And so when we come back next week, going to look again at this trial, but we're going to go a little bit further and explain that this, what patience does and endurance. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the most important fruits of the Spirit, the word that's used here. And it's not just patience. Oh, that person's getting on my nerves. Every time they, 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 they make me angry, I have to count to 10. One, two, three, four, calm down, Bruce. But this patience is one of the most important aspects of our character because of what it produces and it makes us mature, and then we lack nothing. There's the blessing. And then we're going to talk about how. When you're in a trial, what you need most is wisdom. Wisdom from God. And the beautiful thing is, whatever you're going through, if you ask for wisdom, it will come. You might not know how it's going to come, but it will come if you ask. And it's the wisdom that will get you through. Amen? See you next week at the five o'clock service. God bless you.